Welcome to Songcraft. Here's part two of our interview with Matt Davis. So you send Elvis this tape. It's It's got In the Ghetto on it. It's got Don't Cry Daddy, which was another top 10 single for Elvis. Um, how, how, what's the story behind Don't Cry Daddy? Where did that come from? True story. I was watching the news. And I had my son, Scotty, over there. Yeah. Scotty was... Uh, was just playing around, and I was watching the news, and uh, the uh, My Lai Massacre came on. Hmm. And uh, I I don't remember how it happened exactly, but I guess I started crying. A little tear dropped out of my eye because they were showing hmm. these these bodies of these women and children that got slaughtered by our troops. Yeah. And uh, I feel this little pat on my shoulder, and I hear, Don't cry, Daddy. Don't cry, Daddy Daddy, please don't cry Daddy, you still got me a little Tommy Together we'll find a brand new mommy Daddy, Daddy, please laugh again Daddy, ride us on your back again Oh, Daddy, please don't cry So I did what I always do. <laughs> right. I, I, you know, I'd write a song about it. Yeah. And I'd write a. I, I was a king of sad songs back then. I wrote <laughs> "Daddy's Little Man" and yeah. Uh, Freddie and I wrote a song called "Drinking Christmas Dinner" that just tear you apart. <laughs> 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 and uh, uh, at any rate, uh, by the time I got him uh, back over to his to his mama's house, uh, I had uh, written the chorus. Wow. I mean the the line. Daddy, you still got me and little Tommy. Together we'll find a brand new mommy. Is <laughs> maybe one of the heaviest lines ever. Like <laughs> I don't know about that. But uh, a beautiful song. And I, I understand uh, that through this relationship with Elvis and that you were building, that you have a pretty interesting story about how you became one of the few people to end up with Elvis's home number. Oh, uh, well, I had gone to, uh, I was doing a concert in, uh, in West Memphis, Arkansas, a little small college there, and uh, it's right across the state line from from Memphis, Tennessee. Right. And I had gotten a call from uh, Elvis's guys. Uh, would I like to come see a movie with them? They were going to start watching a movie at at eleven o'clock or something like that. <laughs> right, of course. And he rented the theater, and I'd heard all this, you know, these years of, about Elvis renting the Memphian Theater, and and. Uh, what a special thing it was and boy my eyes got you know huge <laughs> right. yeah yeah i want to go there yeah. and see that so i went and uh walked in and uh, when everybody walked went to sit down and, and see the movie uh elvis was sitting right out there in the middle of the theater with linda thompson hmm. who he was going with at the time and uh I just grabbed me some popcorn and walked right down there and stepped over the the guy who was sitting on the end of the row and walked down and sat down next to to him and Linda. And it was the first time I'd ever been around him when I wasn't just surrounded by the Memphis Mafia or people that, you know, hanging right. on every word. And uh, we had a great time. Laughed, made fun of the movie, you know, and uh, all that stuff. And I, I really kind of felt like I'd got to know him a little bit yeah. that night. And uh, just before the movie was over, I... I had to use the restroom. We'd been drinking beer as well as eating popcorn. <laughs> Went back to the restroom, and one of his, uh, one of the 
bodyguard types came back there. I won't. Uh, I don't even remember the kid's name. It, it, it wasn't Red or Sonny West, right. but came back and told me that I wasn't supposed to be sitting by Elvis and that, mm. that I should be sitting back with the invited guests in the back row. And I got really upset. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Elvis came out and. Uh, the movie was over before I got back in there, and he could see something's wrong. He said, "What's the matter, man?" And, and I told him, "I said you don't even know what's going on around you. You have no idea." And uh, some guy just came in there and told me that I wasn't supposed to sit with you, and it's made me feel like this big. And yeah. um, you know, it's it's ridiculous. I mean, I've, I, it's not like I haven't written several number one records right. for you. And, <laughs> right. and he says, "Who was it that told?" You? I said, "I I'm not going here to get anybody in trouble. I just said it just you know." It just—it's not a feeling that I like having. Right. He said, "Well, how can I make it right, man?" Yeah. <laughs> and I just thought for a second. And I said, "I don't know. Give me your home number." <laughs> awesome. And he says, uh, "Okay." <laughs> and he says, uh, "Charlie Hodge was standing there. Charlie was the guy who handed him his scarves, handkerchief, yeah. Yeah, scarves, yeah. and stuff. And also was an old friend. He played rhythm guitar and stuff." Yeah. He says, "Charlie, give back my phone number." And uh, Charlie says, "Huh?" <laughs> give what, what? What? Give him your phone number, and he says, "Yeah." And he says, "Which number? What number?" And Elvis says, "My home number, man." And he didn't know what it was. <laughs> that's, that's great. And he says, "Says you mean the number at the house?" And he says, "Yeah, the one I answer when you call me at my house." <laughs> and Charlie goes to Joe Esposito, and I could see him. Joe was the 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 tour manager, and right. and. Uh, you know the the highest up of, of the Memphis Mafia guys, and I could see him shaking his head and saying, "Well, go ahead, go ahead and give it to him." If Elvis said, "Give it to him," give it to him. Yeah. So he wrote it down on a matchbook cover and gave it to me, and uh, I never called it. But I, and I told Elvis, I said, "I'll probably never call it, man." But it it makes me see you in a different light. Yeah. Huh. And Elvis says, "No, man, you can call me anytime." Wow. And, uh, but I never called him. Yeah. yeah. But I had it. I kept it in my book for like. 20 years after he died that's awesome. wow. yeah so yeah man well at the same time that that you were having your run of success with elvis uh you scored a couple of r&b hits by oc smith um friend lover woman wife and daddy's little man which you referenced a minute ago when you were talking about your son um but what i notice about your songs in this period is that they have this very easygoing kind of conversational tone they they flow it's almost it's the way people talk, um, but it's like the best version of the way people talk. It's it's well crafted, but it just kind of flows out, and it sounds like someone is is speaking to you. And at the same time, there's a lot of emotional depth, a lot of resonance, particularly with a song like "Daddy's Little Man" um, and the this picture that it paints in your head of the little kid asking if the bullfrogs bite, and and the dad's thinking about much weightier issues and, you know, yeah. trying to care for his son. And, and so I'm just kind of curious, um, as a lyricist, when you were writing these songs, were there particular heroes that you had or, or people not necessarily musically, but lyrically who kind of shaped you or, or people that you looked up to or admired? Because it seems like a, your, your lyrical style to me seems fairly unique. Well, you know, there were there were other guys. I I got ideas from other people every now and then. You know, that's part of writing songs. You, yeah. you know, uh, but you can't steal from them. But you can <laughs> right. you can you know we're all influenced by it. Yeah. Uh, by what we hear, and I know Bobby Russell 
was a, a bit of a hero of mine. Mm. At one time, he wrote um, "Honey," right? A song, yeah. "Honey," Bobby Goldsboro did. Yeah, and uh, it had kind of a conversational thing to it. You know, "Honey, I miss you." He's talking to somebody who's yeah. passed away. Yeah. So uh, I'm sure that might have had a little something to do with it. And uh, um, I I used to try to write songs that sounded conversational where I just said uh, try to write songs that sounded conversational if I pick up a guitar I could put music behind what I just said Hmm. try to write songs that sounded conversational try to write songs that sounded conversational right right. you know and that's that's I tried to do that so that uh, you felt like you were having a conversation with whoever was singing the song right uh it didn't always work that way, <laughs> but it worked sometimes. Yeah, and sure. Daddy's little man. I just thought, what well, cool it would be, because I would try to pick it at my son. You know, after we got divorced, because I was curious. Is she gonna? Is some guy? You know, is she dating somebody? Or, right. And he he didn't want to hear that. Yeah. Right? You know, he's five years old. Yeah. So you know. Dad, look at the tree, you know. Yeah. <laughs> look at that bug. Right. And whatever. It was uh, like, uh, oh, yeah, well, uh, well, does she, uh, yeah. could, you know, and um, things like that, uh, just that they would happen in my songs. Um, well, it, you know, with that conversational tone uh, comes kind of a sense of intimacy, and a lot of the lyrics uh, of your songs have that as well. Uh, you, we talked about Kenny Rogers and the song Something's Burning uh, from 1970. Um, in that song, the narrator is waking up with this woman, and he describes her warm and rhythmic breathing and kissing the sleep from her eyes. I mean, that seems really immediate and really personal. Um, I'm asking you a personal question. Are you a, a person who can kind of express that kind of vulnerability in real-life conversations, or did the songs become kind of an outlet for you, um, things you might not otherwise be able to say or express? No. I'm uh, a <laughs> short answer. I'm uh, I'm an open book, mm. and I'm a sucker. You know, uh, I cry over commercials. I'm just one of those kind of kind of people. And uh, I used to always answer that question by saying that I just try to take my life and your life mm. and make it rhyme. Well, thanks to your success as a songwriter, um, you got the opportunity to sign with Columbia Records as an artist around 1970 or so. Um, and your first album, Song Painter, spawned a couple of charting singles that you wrote, um, Whoever Finds This, I Love You, and I'll Paint You a Song. Um, but at this point in your career, you were still finding more success with other artists' recordings of your tunes, including uh, Glenn Campbell's top five country hit, Everything a Man Could Ever Need, and Bobby Goldsboro's cross-genre hit, Watching Scotty Grow. B-R-L-F-Q spells mom and dad. Well, that ain't too bad, cause that's my boy. Well, you can have your TV and your nightclubs. And you can have your driving picture show. I'll stay here with my little man near. We'll listen to the radio. Biding my time and watching Scotty grow. That song is a song because my name is Scott. Mm -hmm. My parents played a lot. When I was yeah. a kid, it was kind of a favorite of theirs because 
they were watching Scotty grow. Um, <laughs> but uh, that song was a, a big hit, top 10 on the country and the pop and the adult contemporary charts. Um, and you've mentioned y- your son, Scott. I assume that that is a very, probably one of your most personal songs. Yeah. Uh, in fact, you're, you're younger than most of the guys who tell me their parents played that song when they were kids. <laughs> Uh, Scotty, by the way, is 51 now. Okay. Wow. So just so to, to show you how long ago that was. Right. But um, that thing with Scotty happened, uh, I mean, it was just one of those little miracle songs that his uh, his mother was sick, and I was keeping him for, for a week. Yeah. And uh, I had him at work with me. And... Uh, he was getting in my hair, and I gave him a legal pad, which I always, I still write on legal pads. You see him laying around all yeah. over the place. But uh, I handed him a little yellow legal pad and a felt tip pen, and I said, Draw a picture for daddy. So I'm working away, and all of a sudden, he, maybe 20 minutes goes by, and he comes walking over and he hands me this picture, and it's a rocket ship. And on the side of the rocket ship is and crudely drawn, of course, this is right. a five year old kid. And there are the letters P-R-L-F-Q on the side of the rocket ship. I says, that's a beautiful rocket ship. I says, what does that spell? And he said, Mom and Dad. Hmm. And this was, I mean, we had, you know, been divorced for quite a while, but it was just, you know, you could see that it was in his head. Wow. Yeah. And uh, I immediately, wow. There he sits with a pen and a yellow pad. He's a handsome lad. That's my boy. P R L F Q spells mom and dad. Well, that ain't too bad because yeah. that's my boy. Yeah, and that's where it came from. Is that whole thing? And it's yeah. Uh, um, and it's one of the saddest things in my life. I don't. I lost that piece of paper somewhere. I st- I kept it for years. Yeah, and then it got lost. Mm. And uh, I don't know where what happened ah. to it. <laughs> Maybe in the move when I was moving from one place to another. Or yeah. But, that was basically where that came from. Yeah. It's, it's one of the beautiful things about writing a song is that even even though that piece of paper, you can't find it, the story is forever emblazoned and immortalized in the song. Um, and we talked about, you know, the the personal aspect of so much of your writing. Um, and the title track from your second album, I Believe in Music, which we just mentioned before, it wasn't a big hit initially, but it went on to become a pop standard that's been recorded by B.J. Thomas, Louis Jordan, Perry Como, Helen Reddy, dozens of people. And, you know, thinking about that personal life angle, the refrain, I believe in music, I believe in love, it seems like that's almost something that could be like a, a purpose statement or a, a defining statement for who you are. Would would that be accurate to say? You know, I don't know, I guess. Uh, it just came about... <laughs> As uh, I don't know if you've ever heard the story of how I wrote it, but uh, I was at Lulu's house in England, and she was living at that time with Maurice Gibbs hmm. of the Bee Gees. Actually, they were married. And um, so I go over there, and I go in, and there's still a lot of hippies around. This is like 1970, 71. I uh, went back in the kitchen to, to fix myself a drink, and there was a bunch of hippies in there wanting to have a, um, a seance. And sure. uh, English hippies are they're even more fun than, than American hippies. <laughs> One of them says, oh, we're going to have a seance. Do you have a seance? I said, no, man. I, I don't think so. That's the beer. Uh, yeah. And uh, one of them says, oh, you don't believe in the occult? And I said, no, man, I believe in music. 
And I went, I believe it. I believe in music. And that's another one of those conversational things. And I looked around, and boy, it was like God tapped me on the shoulder and says, hey, Maurice has got a guitar sitting right over there in the hall. And I saw it, and I walked over, and I grabbed that guitar, sat down on the floor, right, leaned against the wall, and I started going, I believe in music. I believe in music. I believe in music. I believe in music. Conversational. Yeah. I believe in love. Wow. And uh, I, I still, if you sitting right up there, it's the original lyrics really? to it on uh, Hotel Dorchester Stationery. <laughs> awesome. Oh, wow. Dorchester Hotel, back when it was a quaint hotel. Right, right. Uh, <laughs> in, in London. Wow. I went home and wrote that, wrote that song. Wow. That night. Well, your greatest success as an artist and, and one of your greatest successes as a songwriter, too, uh, is the title track to your third album, Baby Don't Get Hooked on Me. Baby, baby, don't get hooked on me. Baby, baby, don't get hooked on me. Because I'll just use you and I'll set you free. Baby, baby, don't get hooked on me. That song went to number one on the pop chart, earned you a Grammy nomination. Um, its song is interesting to me because it's kind of this anti-commitment song. Um, and there's sort of these kind of more relational sort of family songs that have been kind of what have marked your hits up to that point. Um, what prompted you to write that? Well, I would like to say it was a very ethereal, cosmic moment. But uh, Rick Hall, who was my producer at the time, we had, you know, I'd done a couple of albums and um, hadn't had any hits as an artist. And uh, uh, we were trying to cut something up there that would be a hit. And and Rick is very, very hook oriented and very, very hit oriented. And he was just kind of putting me down. He was saying, "Man, you 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 bring in all these old syrupy love songs, and you give all your hook songs away. You give your hook songs to Kenny Rogers and Elvis, and and uh, you know I, I can't get a hit. We got to have something that's got a hook in it." Yeah. And I'd heard that one time too many, so I said, "All right, all right, I'll write you a hook song." And <laughs> I went up to his office, and. Uh, this is at Fame Studios down there. Pad. Yeah, upstairs. He, yeah. His office was up above the studio. Yeah. And, yeah, Fame Studios, Muscle Shoals, Alabama. And uh, pulled out a legal pad and stole a bottle of his scotch and <laughs> poured me a big old drink. And I, just as a joke, I, I wrote, baby, don't get hooked on me because huh. I'll just use you and I'll set you free. And I had the course written and i just i mean that was it that yeah, was that yeah. was going to be it yeah yeah so i walked down there in front of all the musicians and stuff and i said hey rick i got you a hook song man and i'm winking at the guys in the studio and <laughs> he said what is it and i start saying baby baby don't get hooked on me baby <laughs> baby don't get hooked on me right <laughs> he said that's a smash <laughs> and i said it's Rick, you don't get it. It's a joke. He said, I don't care what it is. That's a smash. We're going to wow. cut it. Wow. And I said, oh, I haven't even written it. We can't cut it. And he says, we'll cut it anyway. True. Wow. So we did a skeleton chord regression of it and uh, and sang and did the choruses exactly the way I've written them. And then the, the verses had nothing except music. Right. And uh, I went back to the hotel that night and wrote uh, the lyrics for it. Wow. Wow. <laughs> and uh, recorded, put my vocal on it the next day, 
and left there. And uh, the guys in the band were all saying, man, that's that's going to be a number one record. And I said, no, it's not. Actually, it was the most performed song of the year, being wow. on Song of the Year. I uh, well, won an award for it. But uh, uh, On that same album, there's a song called The Words Don't Come Easy. Um, mm-hmm. And it's interesting, you know, talking to a guy, we're finding out who, who was coming up with whistling melodies as a child, just off the top of your head. Um, do you find that comparative to melodies, the words don't come easy? Or? Absolutely. Yeah. I still... Uh, I, I tell everybody that. Well, the lyrics, of course, to me, I'm a real stickler on lyrics. I want it to. I try to go for the hard rhyme as much as I can, and um, you know, it doesn't always work that way. But uh, um, to me, finding the words is, is the hard part. Well, not to dwell on the uh, "Baby Don't Get Hooked on Me" album too long, but um, I do want to talk about one other song on that record, which is "The Lonesomest Lonesome." Um, it's a song that was covered by Ray Price, which became a number two hit on the Billboard Country Chart for him. Um, but you know, speaking of Fame Studios and, and Muscle Shoals, Clarence Carter down there also did a, an R and B version of that song, um, and it just makes me think listening to you sing it, listening to Ray Price sing it, listening to Clarence Carter sing it, that this is a song, and so many of your songs are are songs that work in the country medium, they work in the pop field, they work in, in R&B. Um, and I'm wondering, have you ever thought of yourself as a country writer, a pop writer, an R&B writer, or do you prefer to just avoid categories altogether? The latter. I, you know, I was always a little too pop for country and a little too country for pop. And that kind of put me on that middle of the road designation, which I'm yeah. not crazy about either. <laughs> but I, um, you know, music is music. I I just had a, a a pretty big international hit last the last couple of years with Avicii. Right. A song called Addicted to You. I wrote that song originally as a ballad sort of a country pop ballad right and uh the songs you can't believe that they're the same song wow Mm. but when i found out i was going to be writing with tim bergling who is avici um i i love the lyric that i had on this song i thought i'm gonna go in and uh and just change the melody completely and to fit an edm or electronic music, yeah, dance music format, yeah, yeah. and um, and we did, and it works equally well either way. You came into my crazy world like a cool and cleansing ray. Before I I knew what hit me, baby, you were flowing through my veins. I'm addicted to you. By the time you released your your fifth album, Stop and Smell the Roses, uh, in 1974, you were um, collaborating more often with co-writers. One Hell of a Woman 
was one of your singles that was written with Mark James, who's best known as the writer of Suspicious Minds. And that's a song that fell just shy of the, the pop top 10. Um, while Stop and Smell the Roses, which you wrote with Doc Severinsen, was a top 40 country and a top 10 pop record. Um, you know, we've talked a lot about kind of your, your process and the way melody kind of comes first and you try to be conversational and all that. But, um, I'm curious from your perspective, what are some of the, the pros and cons of writing solo versus collaborating with others? I can honestly tell you that, uh, I'm better writing by myself. Mm -hmm. I know, I know how to do that better. I'm really trying right now, really hard to learn how to co-write. Mm-hmm. And um, um, the Mark James sessions, that was a definite co-write. We sat down to co-write stuff, and yeah. and uh, one hell of a woman came out of that session. Yeah, Stop and Smell the Roses was a, a total fluke, a wonderful fluke. <laughs> yeah. that I was doing the Tonight Show, and uh, during sound check in the afternoon rehearsal, uh, Doc Severinsen walked over to me in his inimitable way, and he says, I got a hit song title. And I says, what is it? And he said, oh, we're going to write this together. <laughs> and I said, okay, we'll write it together. Great. What is it? He says, promise? <laughs> and I said, yeah, I'm, absolutely. <laughs> he says, he looks around, and he says, you got to stop and smell the roses. <laughs> and man, I went to my little cubbyhole. By that time, I was writing for Screen Gems Columbia Music. All right. And uh, I wrote the song, and I called Doc up, and I said, "Doc, we've written a hit." <laughs> and he says, "We have." And I says, "Yeah." And I sang in the song all the way through. And he says, "Man, we have written a hit." <laughs> By the mid 1970s, I mean, you were a successful songwriter and a popular artist. You were named the Academy of Country Music's Entertainer of the Year in 1974, and you hosted your own The Mac Davis Show on NBC at the time, which was a variety show that ran for three seasons. And one of the things that you would do on the show is have an audience member call out a line, and you'd write a song on the spot. Well, again, we talk about writing under pressure. <laughs> yeah. It's writing under pressure. You're on television. On television. Yeah. When did you know that you could actually do that, write that quickly, just that way? You know, I had done it a couple of times, and my manager had seen me do it just at a party or something, and I'd make up a little song, somebody would say something, and he says, do you think you could do that on your show? And he said, and I said, uh, I don't know, man. I don't know about that. Yeah. And uh, he said, would you be willing to try it? And I said, yeah, we'll try it, as long as I know we, you know, if I mess up, we don't have to use it. Right. So we we figured out a way that we could do this. They had to get song titles from these people before they walked in the room okay um they would run these by me while i was sitting in makeup chair just before we went on the air because i had to choose the ones that i wanted to do so they could light these people in the audience in television you stand up and say i want you to write a song they've got to have a light sitting on you so they had to set these people at certain spots so i did get a little bit of a chance to while i'm sitting there in makeup i'd say okay i I think i can write something funny here right i think i can write something funny with this one i did write them basically on the spot but uh, we you know i wasn't as smart as it made it look like i was (laughs) they 
the miracle of tape editing. <laughs> the we beauty of TV, right? We right. edit a lot of that stuff. Well, you know, with all of this success, I mean, you were at this point a, a bona fide star. Um, and with that comes pressures, comes demands, comes just a whole different schedule than maybe you would have had when you were kind of first starting out as, as a songwriter. And I'm wondering in what ways just the, the demands of being a celebrity affected your process as a songwriter? Well, it's funny you should ask that. I, <clears throat> I got, my life got so cluttered up with all that stuff. And uh, I don't like using the term star Please, yeah, I, I've never felt that way at all. About if myself. you have a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, I think you have to <laughs> accept the label. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I don't know. I, yeah, I do have one of those, but now, and but I wasn't going to turn it down. You know, right, exactly. Right. But uh, um, my life got so cluttered up uh, and busy that I think my writing got shunted aside. I didn't have time to really sit down and. And and do it, do yeah. it all, and and deal with the people, and deal with the rehearsals, and deal with traveling, and all that stuff. And right. some of the things that that I really regret today is uh, songs I wish I'd written. Hmm. And uh, uh, I can remember Roy Orbison calling me, Roy Orbison, who was like a hero of mine. Sure. And uh, he actually, he'd gone dry. He called me and asked me if I'd write something for him. Hmm. And uh, I said, man, I, I, you know, number one, I couldn't believe I was actually talking to him on the telephone. Yeah, I just had to tell him, I, I just don't know that I can do it because I, I can't even keep up with their asking me for another album from Columbia Records right now. And yeah. I got to write something for myself. Yeah. But anyway, those, the, the uh, yeah, I, I think that, my uh, songwriting got hurt, but I'm back to writing uh, yeah. full time now. Yeah, I just had a just got an award on a Bruno Mars uh, song that I I wrote a little part of. Oh, is that right? Called Young Girls. Yeah. Oh, tell us about that. I didn't know about that. Oh, you didn't? No, well, I, I hadn't been you know exactly tooting my horn about it, but it was <laughs> uh, a guy named Jeff Basker, who's a great uh, record producer and and writer in his own right. I called him actually to see if he wanted to go play golf. Uh, and uh, he said, oh, man, I'm uh, working with Bruno right now. And I said, Bruno Mars? And he says, yeah. And I said, boy, I'd like to be a fly on the wall. So he said, well, come on over. So I went over there, and uh, they they were trying to find a rhyme to go with, uh, you get the best of me. All you young, wild girls, you get the best of me. Right. And they wanted a rhyme with that. And I said, how about uh, you'll be the death of me? And they all went, Voila! You know? <laughs> and uh, next thing you know, it, it turned out to be the hook. Are you young wilders? You make a mess of me. Yeah, you young wilders. You'll be the death for me. The death for me. Are you young wilders? No matter what you do. Turning back to to the seventies for just a minute, um, you know, there, you wrote a handful of self-pinned singles in seventy-five and seventy-six, but in nineteen seventy-seven there was a single called "Picking Up the Pieces of My Life," 
Um, was there anything autobiographical in that, um, looking at all the things that you'd kind of been through up to that point when writing that song? Yeah. I actually, I wrote about three different, three or four different versions of that song, but the one that uh, uh, that was released as a single was, uh, I think, the better one. But yeah, I had gone through a, a, another divorce, mm. and uh, it was one of those, this time though, it was front page National Enquirer stuff. <laughs> right. and, uh, um I, I felt like I had gotten the, the raw end of the deal. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so I just wrote a song called Picking Up the Pieces, you know. Oh. And uh, lyrically, it was it was written about where I was at the time. You talked earlier about, you know, being a little too pop for country, a little too country for pop. It was, you know, you kind of had a unique thing going on. And, and your singles all throughout the 1970s were equally as likely to chart on the pop chart, on the country chart, adult contemporary chart, some combination thereof, you know, it was just sort of like you never knew where a, a Mac Davis song was, was going to land on the charts. Um, but you hit really a, a string of primarily country hits in the early 1980s after you signed with Casablanca records. I had, I had finished a movie, uh, North Dallas 40 and I wrote that whole Texas in my Rearview mirror album. Yeah while I was on downtime doing that movie. And uh, that Texas, my rearview mirror, actually is one of my, uh, that would be one of my top two or three songs, yeah, uh, personally, yeah. that that meant a lot to me. Yeah. Well, I thought one of my better crafted songs. Yeah, so, well, right uh, before, like just before the, the Texas and the rearview mirror record came out was when uh, It's Hard to Be Humble became a top 10 country hit. Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble When you're perfect in every way I can't wait to look in the mirror Cause I get better looking each day To know me is to love me I must be a hell of a man Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble but I'm doing the best that I can. The story on that, it was right after I had finished. We had just wrapped North Dallas 40. I had to go to work the next night in Lake Tahoe at Harrow's Club. Hmm. And um, I got in there uh, the night after, the, the day after we wrapped. Um, actually, I had one night to get in there and get collected. But I went went to bed. I get up the next morning at 5 a.m. because I'm still on movie time, you know. <laughs> yeah. Right. And I got, I don't know anybody in the world that's awake at 5 a.m. unless they're doing a movie somewhere. Right. <laughs> so I got nobody to call. And I was staying in what they call the star suite there. Right. And uh, I'm looking around this room. It's all gilded and smoke mirrors and <laughs> uh, gold this and gold lame that and right. it looked like it was decorated by Sammy Davis and Shelley Winters on a bad day <laughs> and I'm walking around in this big I'm all by myself right? and I'm naked <laughs> and I look over in the mirror and I'm standing there like <laughs> well, it's hard to be humble, ain't it? <laughs> and I literally said that out loud uh. and I thought, well, there's a way to kill some time <laughs> and I sat down and started writing this little thing. Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. Yeah. <laughs> Can't wait to look in the mirror. 
I get better looking each day. And I knew there was something that was going to happen with that song. And I sang it that night on stage. All I had was one, the first verse and a chorus. The guys in the band hadn't even heard it yet. I said, I'm going to try something out on you guys, which I was wont to do in those days. (laughs) And I sang that thing, and I saw guys banging their beer bottles on the table and saying, yep, that's me, and (laughs) and their girlfriends pointing at them and poking them in the ribs. (laughs) And before I even recorded the song, before I had a recording on it, I was doing it on stage at all these state fairs and these big gigs where we'd have twenty to 30,000 people out there. And they were singing along by the end of the song. They were singing full bore as loud as they could sing. We tried to record it live at a state fair, but we couldn't get it to sound right. So when we actually did the record, we did it in a studio Yeah, and uh, passed around some some drinks to everybody. Right. And uh, Made a little crowd noise. Had a little fun with it. Yeah. People were singing along, really, 20,000, 30,000 at a time. Wow. That's that's the kind of market research you can't do with analytics or a focus group or a bunch of people <laughs> yeah, at a boardroom right. table. You can only yeah. get it in that live environment. Yeah. Oh, it was it was fun. That was one of those songs. And they'd sing at the top of their lungs, too. You know, wow. I love sing-along songs. I always have. Well, we, we uh, mentioned that 1980 album, Texas in My Rearview Mirror, and it was a big success both uh, the title track and the song uh, Hooked on Music, hitting the country top ten. And both are written by you solo, and they're reflective songs um, uh, kind of about your growing up years in Texas. And, you know, we talked about Atlanta and L.A. Was this part of you kind of getting back to those Texas roots a little bit after kind of seeing the world? Yeah. Well, I always, you know, I was very proud to be a Texan. I'm a typical Texan. You know, we all... Love Texas, and, right. and uh, we love saying we're from Texas. <laughs> and uh, I had always just wanted to write something about my roots and, and an autobiographical kind of an album and have some fun with it. You know, uh, one of my favorite songs on that album is, is Me and Fat Boy. <laughs> and uh, there was a guy named Bill Pruitt who was my best friend in school, and his nickname was Fat Boy Pruitt, and everybody called him that. And there was no stigma about it or anything. Right. <laughs> he was a big old boy. Yeah. And uh, he became a local celebrity uh, there in Lubbock. People played that. Uh, the DJs all played that song, and everybody knew him around town. That's and, uh, cool. Yeah, he was cool with it. Yeah. But that's what the, that's what that album was about. Mm-hmm. It was something I'd always wanted to do, was just write something totally autobiographical. And there were a couple of songs in there that, uh, you know, you always exaggerate. But, sure. uh uh, I'm I'm proud of that album. Yeah. I always recommend that people say, well, if I was going to buy a Mac Davis album, which one should I get? And I'd say, well, I'd get that one. Yeah, yeah, it's a great yeah. record. So. Um, well, your 1981 single, You're My Bestest Friend, was another kind of lighthearted song, um, which would become your, your last self-pinned top 10 record as an artist. Um, and then eventually, after the, the mid-1980s, you dropped off the charts as an artist, not necessarily as a writer. Um, and you've been candid about the fact that you were battling alcohol in those years and, um, you even kind of stepped away from, from writing for a while. Um, talk about the years when songwriting was not a regular part of your life. And I mean, it, it had to have been years since you had gone without writing songs. Did that sort of throw you off balance? I mean, what was it like to kind of go through that, that period of adjustment? I had retired and uh, I told people that I was going to retire and I'm going to play golf 
uh, every day and drink expensive whiskey. And that's what I did. I played golf and drank expensive whiskey. Got my handicap down to a two at one point. I was really a good wow. player. And, and uh, I, I drank, you know, while I played golf and everything worked out. And then one day it didn't. Hmm. One day I just uh, realized that uh, I couldn't handle it anymore. It had come up on me. So I, uh, I'm going to make a long story short. I got sober like, like most intelligent people will do at some point if you know <laughs> if, if there's a way they can do it they do and i did and uh, i got offered to will rogers follies a broadway musical while i was there there was a lot of downtime there because they got winter in new york mm, right and you don't play <laughs> golf every day yeah, <laughs> right true and uh, uh i started writing and i wrote a, a very personal album and mm. which was titled will write songs for food mm. and uh which I thought was pretty clever <laughs> title, but uh, it went nowhere. It mm. didn't. Uh, it didn't get a push. And you know, I was. I had to kind of look myself in the mirror and say, you know, you're not 35 years old anymore. Mm. And uh, so that was 20 years ago, and I was pushing 50. And uh, uh, the handwriting was on the wall as far yeah. as that was concerned. So I kind of drifted off. I stopped writing for a while. But, you know, it just, uh, I was still making rhymes. And the next mm -hmm. thing you know, I was picking up the guitars and putting melodies to them. And yeah. so I've uh, just kind of, uh, I'm at this point right now, I'm, uh, I'm trying to write with other people. And, right. Uh, I'm hungry again. Yeah. yeah. And I got that hit with the, the re release of A Little Less Conversation. Yeah. Back about uh, 13 years ago. Yeah. A little less conversation, a little more action, please. All this aggravation ain't satisfaction in me. A little more pride, a little less fun. A little less pride, a little more spark. Close your mouth and open up your heart and maybe satisfy me. Satisfy me, baby. And uh, that's the gift that just won't quit giving. Right. A little less conversation. It turned out to be, in, uh, in all honesty, the biggest... Uh, money maker i ever had wow and and it was uh it became a uh commercial it was the it was nike's theme for the 2002 mm -hmm. world cup right and i'd never had a real uh international hit like that yeah. that was played it was also a dance hit in the dance clubs and all that stuff and right in the ghetto was an international hit but it it didn't have all that extra uh uh, all the different outlets airplay and outlets yeah. uh, for it and yeah. uh, it was just like oh i love this and uh you know i bought me a sports car for the first time I, i'd been driving my, what i call my in the ghetto car <laughs> since 1969 wow. i bought a 1969 mercedes 280sl the little convertible right. two-seater okay. and i still had it and uh i kept it all those years and uh, I had a license plate that said Indy Ghetto on the license because that's what paid for it. It's right over there, that's right? It's sitting right there on the yeah. floor. You can see it. <laughs> I had my Lisa framed it for me. When I got this, I bought a new car, with the, uh, which was also an Elvis thing, and I put uh, my license plates then became Thanks Elvis. <laughs> nice. T-H-X, E-L-V-I-S. Right. E uh, so Thanks great. Elvis. That's awesome. I started to put... Uh, I was going to put uh, mailbox money on there, but I was afraid <laughs> I'd get it 
<laughs> it would get keyed every time I saw, it, so I saw that. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it really is that that Junkie XL remix of a little less conversation. Not only reintroduced that song, but it introduced Elvis through the Nike commercial and the things you mentioned to probably some kids of a new generation who maybe didn't think Elvis is so cool. And then they hear this thing and go, Oh no, I can relate to that. And and it, it's like a portal into the genius of Elvis for a generation that might have needed some help ushering in to like, Hey, come appreciate what an entertainer this guy was. Well, the most important thing that it did was give me street cred with my own children. <laughs> All of a sudden, right. you wrote that, Dad? <laughs> All the kids at school are singing it, and they were right. like, you know, uh, 10 and 12 years old right. at the time. Dad's cool. All the kids are singing. You wrote that? <laughs> yeah, I did. I wrote that wow. song. So. Um, well, you know, you've earned some incredible honors in your career. We mentioned your star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame been nominated for three Grammys. You've been inducted into the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame in 2000. You're a member of the the National Songwriters Hall of Fame in New York, where, where you were inducted in, in 2006. But like you said, you're hungry again. You have this, this drive as a writer. And in 2010, you collaborated with Rivers Cuomo to write Time Flies, which he recorded with his band Weezer. Time flies when you're having fun. Time flies. You know, somebody, uh, I'm not even sure, someone called, uh, my my manager is still around, by the way, we don't do a lot with each other, but we've just become dear friends, Jim Morey and I, and Jim called up and says, uh, how'd you like to write with Rivers Cuomo? And I said, the, the Weezer guy? And he said, yeah. And I said, oh, I'd love that, man, because my kids, they loved Weezer. Yeah, when, right. You know, and uh, I said, that'd be, boy, that would just be great in the eyes of my boys. They'd love that. Yeah. And uh, sure enough, uh, I started writing a song because they've, they've set it up. And then he he kept canceling appointments because mm. he's busy, you know. Right. And uh, I had the song almost written by the time he got over here. Right. And in fact, if you, he ended up uh, only taking 10% of it because he mm. just wrote the last. Help, we wrote the last verse together. Yeah. But uh, I was just trying to kind of write a song that uh, would would uh, appeal to the fact that they were try- kind of making a comeback, and they'd yeah. been around a while. And, yeah. And what, uh, you know, uh, you look in the mirror, and you look a little older than you did the day before. <laughs> and uh, yeah. that's what the song was all about. But he actually, we wrote a song that, that uh, I'll play for you sometime. Yeah. That... Uh, it's a, it's just a nice story. He's such a great guy, mm. and we were sitting there, and he's he's very um, unassuming, and yeah. he just is who he is. Yeah. And uh, he says, you know, we might have a better chance of getting a song on the Weezer album if it's one of my ideas. <laughs> and I said, well, great. Let's let's try one of your ideas. And we'd already finished uh, "Time Flies," and. Um, he looks at his computer and he looks and he looks and finally he looks up at me in this wonderful look that he quizzical look and he says, "What an incredible body I have." <laughs> 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 and I said, 
fantastic <laughs> absolutely that's great man so we uh we wrote a song and it turned out to be kind of a geek it's hard to be humble right i was about to say it's like the b-side that's what it was and uh the the hook line was uh what an incredible body I have, perfect pecs and impeccable abs. Not one speck of excess flab. What an incredible body <laughs> I have. What an incredible body wow. I have. Solar plexus like a concrete slab. All sort of sexy <laughs> things to grab. What an incredible body I have. Wow. And, uh, yeah, and it was wow. it was him. I could just see him doing it, but it didn't make the cut. It didn't make the album. <laughs> right, right. It was a lot of fun, though. Yeah. Well, it's really uh, cool just to hear a record like A Little Less Conversation from the late 60s and think like, here's the same guy. He's writing with Weezer. He's writing with Avicii. He's writing with Bruno Mars. You know, this is all very contemporary stuff that's that's happening. And it's, I don't know, it's just exciting to me to to see that you're still like, you have the passion for it after all these years and you know, you're still pursuing it and you're like, you say you're hungry for it. You know, it's, it's just inspiring to see uh, all these decades of, of success and, and work and to think like, you know, you're still the guy who thought it was cool to see Buddy Holly driving by, you know, that you still are the guy that loves the music. Um, and so I I just want to leave you with this one last question. Um, if you had to select just one, Mac Davis song that you would like to be remembered for 100 years from now, what song would you choose? It's a song that you haven't heard yet. Mm. And uh, I've written it, but you haven't heard it yet. Mm. But it, uh, it, it's a, a special song. That, uh, and I, I don't want to give it away right, right now, the title, but it's a song you haven't heard yet. All right. I kind of like the intrigue, actually. I'll play yeah. it. I'll play it for you afterward. I like right. it. <laughs> After we go off the air. Excellent. Well, I I got to tell you, man, uh, this is one of my favorite conversations that we've had sitting down with you. So, thank you so much for giving us your time and welcoming us to your home. And, and look, I saw the list of people you've you've talked to before, and I'm just uh, another pebble on the beach, baby. <laughs> these are these are some great songwriters, and I'm. I'm uh, humbled and grateful to be put in the same bunch with them. Thank you for listening. To find out more about our guests, stream episodes, get a sneak peek at upcoming interviews, or to contact us with your feedback, visit songcraftshow.com. While you're there, sign up for our mailing list so you can stay up to date with everything that's happening in the Songcraft universe. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please like our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash songcraftshow. And if you enjoy what we're doing here at Songcraft, please take a moment to leave us a rating and review on iTunes, which truly helps potential listeners discover these conversations. And we look forward to getting together with you again for the next episode of Songcraft. Back porch preacher preaching at me Acting like he wrote the golden rule Shaking his fist and speeching at me